Pasa Mufasa. Welcome to the Mycopreneur Podcast. This is a podcast about people solving problems with mushrooms. I'm your host, Dennis Walker. Let's get down to business. Okay, Pasa Mufasa, what's up, everybody? Welcome to the Micropreneur Podcast. Bob Johnson of Microboost and Custom Capsule Consultants. How are things in Los Angeles today, Bob? Dennis, thanks for having me on the show. Big fan, and I'm, I'm really honored to be here. Well, it's mutual because I'm rocking my Microboost mushroom coffee right here. I have been traveling with it, as you know. I was just in Asia for three months. And I didn't get sick once. And I don't know if I can attribute all of that to the functional mushrooms, but certainly I think they played a huge role in helping to shape my vitality and support me. So thanks a lot for the work that you're doing. And let's jump right into it. So I crossed paths with you for the first time at the California Psychedelic Conference last year. How did you get connected to the whole Oakland Haife community and that California psychedelic community? And how has your involvement and participation in that community shaped the path that you're on with Microboost? So I went to a CBD conference in Denver in uh, March 2020 or May 2020, I think. Uh, and they had a psychedelic science component to the to the conference as well. And so I went to a panel on like regulation and like the future of business and psychedelics. And one of our mutual friends, Catherine Sidman, was uh, moderating that panel. And at the end, she turned the, uh, the to the audience for questions. And I raised my hand and she said, oh, yeah, called on me. And I said, hey, uh. I know it's decriminalized here in Denver. I was just wondering who in this room has samples because I do and I'll uh, I'll trade with you. And Kat said, well, that's the best question that anyone could have asked. Uh, so I want to talk to you after the show if anyone else has the second best question for the panel. And uh, and as I uh, was hoping, a bunch of people after afterwards stood up and talked to me and and shared samples and, you know, became friends and including Kat, who came up and said, hey, are you going to the mushroom pop-up? And I said, yeah, I don't know about it, but tell me, where is it? And so uh, she she invited me over to this uh, event that, that Reggie and Ian and Tomas were hosting. Uh, and I didn't know what to expect, right? This is my first time in a, a decriminalized city. Uh, it was, you know, literally like I think a week before that they had the, the vote. And... So I didn't know if I was going to walk into some sort of like mushroom bazaar or, uh, you know, uh, you know, a dance party or or what it was. You know, we got there a little after it started. And, you know, when we got up there, it's a panel much like I'm very familiar with now with a bunch of just super inspiring people almost sitting around like uh, revolutionaries, it seems, uh, you know, super educated and uh, intelligent and and woke in the best possible ways and uh anyways i i brought a bunch of samples to that event too and you know started uh sharing them with friends and you know we had like cbd is better sunglasses and and uh boner pills and thc and all sorts of fun supplements that we make at custom capsules and uh and i showed reggie some of the samples and he looked at me and, you know, he could be a serious guy. And he's just like, what is your plans with this? And, you know, I'm looking to have the right answer. I just sat there and listened to all these 
really eloquent panelists for an hour. And I was like, well, you know, I just want to bring these sort of opportunities to people and, uh, you know, the medicine to the community. He's like, no, no, no. What's your business plan? I was like, oh, thank God. Yeah, let's talk about that. You know? <laughs> Uh, and, uh, you know, been, been friends ever since. Um, you know, I told those guys that I would go and visit them in Oakland because I was really, really interested in what they were doing, uh, testing different tryptamine levels and mushrooms. And my whole career has been about legitimizing plant medicine by making products that are predictable and repeatable and, you know, act like medicine. You know, you don't, you don't take an aspirin and Sometimes it cures your headache and sometimes, you know, you uh, slip into an alternate dimension, you know, you know what to expect. Yeah, I think that's one of the key themes that we're seeing now with the testing, right, is being able to bank on what you're getting and know exactly what you're getting and understand the profiles of, of what's in what you're taking. And that's something I'd like to see as an industry standard is maybe like a QR code on the side of a bottle of capsules that shows you test results and shows you the profiles and the percentages of whatever is in the product that you're taking. Now, I've seen you in LA, I've seen you in Oakland, and I've also seen you in Miami at quite different conferences that are far more overtly corporatized. And I'm kind of like you, you know, I've got one foot in each world a little bit. And I think a lot of us are trying to figure out ways to create sustainable, beneficial business models. But at the same time, I think you said this at the beginning of the Oakland Psychedelic Conference, you, you let off one of your panels with, who in this room has used money this week, right? And I think there's a tendency sometimes, especially with psychedelics, for people to maybe be a little bit utopian in their worldviews of like the way things we want things to be when in reality like right now we live in a world that's largely dominated and controlled by something like money so i think a lot of people are trying to figure out different business models david bronner just published a piece in rolling stone about stakeholder capitalism talking about the need for changing the way that we approach capitalism and this is a hot button subject but it's one that we've both written about and spoken about extensively, including on a panel together last year called The Future of Business and Psychedelics. So I'd love to hear from your perspective, what are some of the insights that you've gained having one foot in the Oakland psychedelic community where there's a lot more activism and social justice lens and things like that, and also one foot in the very corporate business-focused environment that you might find at Wonderland or some of these other conferences? Yeah, in a lot of ways, I have deja vu from uh, my experience in cannabis. I started in cannabis in 2008. I moved to LA the day Barack Obama was elected and you know, thought it was the perfect timing to, to get into the cannabis industry. I mean, I think that the repeating history is back in the day, the collective model for cannabis was a lot of misnomers about the way business is actually done. You know, you could have this like collective where cannabis was decriminalized and so you can't buy it or sell it, but you can carry it, you can grow it, you can give it away. And so it created all of these different loopholes where basically the government wanted us to live in some sort of fantasy world where we're living in a commune, we're using like the barter system, you know, we're not trading uh, pesos for, for cannabis. Nobody can get rich off this until they or whoever decide like, okay, now, now we're going to make it legal and control the money. But, you know, we also had warring points of view about how we should legalize cannabis. I remember in 2010, when it was first on the 
bill in California. It was a midterm election. We didn't have that much a turnout, you know, as we do during the presidential elections. But at the same time, you had people that we called like the Humboldt camp, you know, the Humboldt faction. They were really happy with the way cannabis laws were because the illicitness is what made it so profitable. And, you know, they had uh, uh, an ecosystem and an economic system that's been thriving since the 60s up there in this, you know, big county with about as many people as like the city of Pasadena, all living in the mountains and and uh, and doing really well for themselves and, and building a, a great life. You know, I lived in in uh, Arcata or just outside of it right after college for a summer and experienced that that grow season. And, you know, November at the Apple store, they have to have like an armored truck come and pick up cash, you know, like twice a day with all of the growers loading up on, on new MacBooks and, and equipment and so on. I think a big difference is that, uh, well, one, you know, cannabis uh, legalization was kind of like the gateway for the, the legalization of these other uh, psychoactive plant medicines. Uh, but a big difference between cannabis and psychedelics uh, for the pharmaceutical companies is that synthetic cannabis sucks. You know, uh, it's called Marinol. It's been around uh, for I'm not I'm not sure when it was originally created, the 40s, 50s, 60s. And, you know, it's just this like synthetic THC that doesn't have uh, the other uh, minor cannabinoids. And it has just like a very almost uh, like nails on a chalkboard. Uh, experience from from what I've heard from people, uh, you know, comparing it to natural cannabis, whereas the molecule of psychedelics can really be uh, mimicked uh, and and can have like a pretty identical, if not even more predictable uh, experience because of that. And so you can't uh, patent nature, but uh, but all these companies are looking to find like new tweaks uh, on the, on these psychedelic compounds so they can patent them and, uh, you know, go the, the normal capitalist route of, of gatekeeping and rent seeking, uh, et cetera. So, but you know, the, what, what I think and like the, the path for psychedelics will probably follow one of cannabis, right? The cannabis was first decriminalized and then it was, uh, you know, brought to the attention that it has these medical properties. Right. And then so we go from from, uh, you know, this uh, this this imaginary hippie barter system thing to, OK, well, you know, we're rolling out the, the grannies with with cancer in front of, you know, the, the city councils and and petitioning that these, um, you know, really sick people should have access to this medicine. And then eventually, you know, as each step of the way progresses, then it's also like, well, you know, adults should be able to make their own decisions about this stuff. And, and, you know, whether you have cancer or not, you know, if you laugh extra hard at Looney Tunes or Bill Murray, you know, maybe that's good for your health. Uh, you know, even if uh, you're 25 years old and, and don't have any serious health issues. Sure. You know, I just don't see how it's possible to control psychedelics. You know, I think that there's always going to be some medicalized routes. And I also am supportive of the therapeutic clinical model. But the idea that that's going to be the, the only bottleneck or the way that people do it, I think is very naive when you think about how many people are growing mushrooms and all these underground networks and whatnot. And we've seen a, a little bit of dismay at the Oregon model that's been rolled out and some of the pricing that we've seen, like $500 for a microdose and you go to a clinic and you do this. 
And I just, I just don't see how that's going to be sustainable. But I do suppose there, there is going to be a market for it. There's always going to be someone who wants to take that legal route, you know, and, and a very familiar sort of clinical therapeutic setting and everything else around that too. You know, pretty much when I talk to people involved in that business, they're talking about the ecosystem of offerings that they have, you know, the therapy and the integration and kind of all these supportive components that go above and beyond just the fact that, you know, there's a transaction involving psychedelics. But I don't know that anyone has a perfect model. I think from my perspective, it's really important to be diplomatic and to look for nuance and to try to find some level of amelioration. I like this idea of like hybridizing approaches where I think that, you know, having an ecosystem of approaches where maybe for somebody with diagnosed PTSD who's back from a theater of war, they want to go this specific route. I hope that's available to them. But of course, you know, the, there's plenty of underground communities too, and I just don't ever see that going away. So at the end of the day, I think that diplomacy is something that we've lost, especially in the United States, of being able to communicate between divergent viewpoints. So that's what I'm hoping to do when I go to some of these conferences is I might not agree with everything the other person's saying, but I want to be in the room with them, you know, sit down at the table with them and understand their point of view and, and hopefully find some level of, of amelioration or, you know, coming together and finding a sensible middle path, I guess, is what I'm advocating for, you know, because I, I have lived also in a very utopian bubble before in San Francisco, you know, on hate street and we're disruptors and all this. But at the end of the day, we're still living in a quite expensive city. You know, we still like to have access to all of the goods and services that are afforded to us by our, our government and whatnot. So I think John Lennon said something about why would you tear down the system? It's useful to have the rooms and the machinery. What you want to do is take take that over. You don't want to tear it all down because there's already an infrastructure that's built. So just just some some uh, thought bubbles coming up there. But let's turn to your work with Rolling Stone, which I've been super inspired by. And how did you get linked up with the Culture Council? And I'm curious about when you're pitching something, what are the types of articles that you feel like are in your wheelhouse that you really want to devote your craft of writing to? I subscribe to Rolling Stone basically from like 13 to 18 or 19. It's a huge Hunter Thompson fan. Growing up, uh, Matt Taibbi, I mean, a lot of the different journalists that were legacy contributors to Rolling Stone, it was always a dream of mine to write about psychedelics in, in Rolling Stone. So when I was approached by the Culture Council, you know, they look for leaders in, uh, you know, interesting uh, industries, technology, music, cannabis, psychedelics, and, uh, you know, just looking for thought leaders to contribute pieces that are business specific and educational. But, you know, I, I just like to share, like you say, my evolving perspective. I feel like these emerging industries, like six months is like two years in, uh, in a normal uh, industry, meaning just change happens so fast. And as a manufacturer, you know, you really have to, to keep up and, you know, try and be uh, ahead of the game, you know, because by the time something is uh, is popular and selling you know you have uh dozens hundreds more businesses and brands that are you know just copy it and you know sometimes uh directly rip off uh brands and uh you know are making counterfeits and and so on so it is uh, it's never a dull moment and i just like to you know also kind of like like you're saying not uh not come at it with an agenda or, you know, just a, a canvas to 
to spew my opinion, but but try and understand where all these uh, different people are coming from. And, uh, you know, people ask me all the time, like, what is the prediction, right? You know, uh, if you're going to be good in business, you got to, in some level, be able to predict the future and make your plans around that. And so, you know, that's kind of what what I'm doing all the time is uh, is evaluating the landscape, reading as much as I can. And, you know, instead of doing like a, a newsletter, which I, I was doing for a while, which was just a roundup of all the most interesting articles I was reading about mushrooms, I just decided, you know, to start putting them around a, a theme and and, you know, sharing all those things. So every article, uh, if you read it of mine, will have uh, at least a dozen other articles and links, you know, to people like you. And you can really just go down a, a rabbit hole educating yourself about it. And so that's, uh, that's a big uh, turn on for me. My, my new one I have, I hopefully it's, it's published before uh, the event this weekend, but it's about psychedelic therapy. And I read and listened to podcasts and, you know, just uh, immerse myself as much as possible and trying to understand this, this world of, uh, you know, schools that are selling these psychedelic therapy certifications, you know, because that's one of the main big businesses in legal psychedelics in this country right now. You know, even Oregon and Colorado have legalized and, you know, are rolling out these, these therapy programs, but the, the cultivation and, and, you know, product may still be, you know, years away with, you know, navigating the, the regulatory environments. So, yeah, I mean, education and information is the most profitable product there is in uh, in our world today. And so, you know, uh, it, like anything, there's a lot of nuance to it. Um, you know, I know personally a lot of people that have been doing uh, trip sitting and, and guided trips for years who are now, you know, going to these schools and officially getting their certification so they can they can practice, uh, you know, in a future legal market. And then at the same time, too, I'm sure, you know, like getting a, a real estate license or 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 something like that. People are, you know, just looking for a career opportunity. And I question whether, you know, someone can can really be prepared to to serve medicine on some sort of shamanic level. Uh, you know, with uh, six months of uh, online courses. Yeah, I think that's a question that is on a lot of people's minds right now. And I find it fascinating, as you know, uh, looking at everything through a satirical lens, because I really think truth has gotten stranger than fiction a lot of the time, especially when we start to see these themes of indigenous cultures and plant medicines colliding with corporate growth and interest and the motivations of traditional American and international business culture. And that's something that to me is endlessly fascinating. Another question I'd like to dive into is about the challenges of scaling. There was a honeymoon phase with psychedelics where there was a lot of capital raised in 2019, right? And like during this uh, ramping up of the psychedelic renaissance and four years later, there's roughly 50 publicly traded companies and not a single one is currently profitable. We're seeing ketamine clinics collapsing. I think it, it comes down maybe to this idea of scaling about like, 
how do you scale a psychedelic venture, right? And maybe for certain things it works, you know, they're, they're success stories for sure. But as a whole, it feels more to me like an industry where maybe there's going to be a lot of smaller, really good players. I don't know. You could argue there's going to be an oligopoly, but I'm just curious about, you know, where you see that challenge of scaling fitting in to running a psychedelic venture. Well, yeah, I mean, uh, similar to cannabis, when you have every state has its own regulations, you have to you, you can't operate like a normal business with a, a big manufacturing facility in you know, whether it's L.A. or Mexico and, you know, serving North America from there on a on a large scale. But rather with cannabis, you had to set up licensing deals in every state, which was tough for us coming from LA that's the biggest cannabis market in the solar system and uh, and then you know we have to like spend just as much money to build a facility in Washington state you know where uh, the entire state has fewer people than than the city of Los Angeles and so yeah it's just really not business friendly um, I think of all the cannabis states Colorado has some of the most uh, friendly business practices, but for big um, publicly traded companies like Compass or so forth, I understand that they're really not uh, looking to you know move into the Oregon's or or Colorado's of the world because uh, just so much time and and regulatory uh, red tape for basically a, a small. Um, uh, basis, right? And it's not just like anybody who is interested in mushrooms in Colorado is available to purchase them now, right? It's just people with these extreme medical conditions uh, who are also willing to pay, you know, 100x of uh, the, the street value of, uh, of these same, you know, plants. But, uh, you know, before we, before we met in person in LA, I was following you on Instagram and I really appreciate your, uh, your approach to this because I think we uh, agree that in, uh, in this community, you know, it's this emerging market that is totally counterculture, uh, you know, historically and, you know, creates such a, such a joy for life and, and self-love and, you know, lots of fun times and laughs and so on. And, and then we get to these uh, conferences and the panels can be just so dead ass serious. And I, I appreciate, you know, your character that, that always likes to, to liven up the room. And, you know, not that we don't take mushrooms seriously or the, the potentiality of the medicine, but, you know, you don't take yourself too seriously. And uh, I really appreciate that about you. I think that, you know, like you mentioned before, that is... Uh, what, you know, gets us in these just like warring camps, you know, and not really being able to, to think outside ourselves. And, and it's kind of crazy to me that, uh, that conferences centered around, you know, fun times like, like cannabis and mushrooms can become these, uh, you know, kind of uh, uptight events. So uh, I think I'm not the only one, by the way, of course, that, that really appreciates what you bring to the to the mushroom community. So, so thanks a lot, man. My pleasure. I'm finding a lot of joy in the spontaneity and the improv, and I'm inspired to continue doing the satire. And I'm glad that it's found an audience and that uh, I can continue to host this podcast and do more serious journalism 
too on the side, just a little dash of that. So with all that being said, let's talk about the actual product lineup that you've got with MicroBoost because I've got a few of your products. I've got the Lion's Mane Cordyceps capsules right now. And I've also got a turkey tail capsule product that I use on a daily basis. And then of course the mushroom coffee. And I think, you know, I've had a few mushroom coffee founders on here. Uh, Jack Savage from Everyday Dose, Danielle Ryan Broida from Four Sigmatic, who are probably the industry standard as far as, you know, scaling and success and quality and all that. And now I'm very fortunate to have you on here. And I think a lot of people are looking for a coffee alternative. You know, there's this idea of like the 2 p.m. crash, the caffeine addiction. You know, a lot of people in our current world are drinking a lot of coffee to stay motivated and whatnot. And speaking from experience, that's not always the best fit for me, for my physiology to go and drink six espressos in a day when I'm trying to pound out an article or something. So what got you attracted to mushroom coffee and where do you see that market going in the near future? Well, I'm, I mean, one of one of my favorite books uh, about business and personal development is called The Power of Habit by Charles Duhigg. And they talk a lot about, you know, how you can really change your, your whole life by, you know, changing these like keystone uh, habits, you know, that become uh, building blocks for, for, you know, change. And, and they, he also talks a lot about, you know, building habit into product development and marketing and, uh, and creating a, a habit loop uh, with your consumer, right? And so I've been a soft gel manufacturer uh, for 13 years now. And, uh, you know, soft gels are a, a great way of, uh, of taking supplements. But, you know, I've seen in the past few years an explosion of gummies, uh, you know, not only in mushrooms and, and cannabis, but across all supplement lines. And I think a, a reason for that is the, the reward of the taste and the sugar and, uh, you know, kind of like this Pavlovian thing where adults, you know, uh, convince themselves that, you know, eating this candy is good for them. Um, and so as I'm, you know, thinking about product development, whenever I develop a new product, I'll go on, uh, on Google, on Amazon, and I'll buy the top 10, top 20 uh, brands that are out there, and I'll try them all. And what I found was uh, a handful of things. One, um, I, I learned about the difference between fruiting bodies and uh, myceliated oats. And I'm sure Jack Savage uh, talked about this too. Um, you know, they, they highlight this a lot in their advertising, but I was shocked to learn, I guess I shouldn't be too shocked since I'm a supplement guy and people contact me all the time and they just want to put, you know, trendy supplements in their, in their products and, you know, list off, well, we want to put ashwagandha, elderberry, lion's mane, you know, uh, all these things into a single product. And I was like, that's great. But you know, you just won't have enough room in uh, in a gummy or a soft gel to put like a, a therapeutic amount of all of those things in there. You know, you kind of have to pick and choose. And, you know, a, a lot of those answers I get back are like, you know, we're just looking for the label claim, right? We don't really care that there's a significant amount of ashwagandha in there that's going to help somebody. We just want, you know, the marketing prowess of, uh, of ashwagandha to put on our label. And so what I learned about uh, functional mushrooms that are grown commercially, I'm sure a lot of your listeners know, you know, you use a, uh, a substrate uh, uh, like corn or brown rice or some sort of starch 
that the mycelium or the roots of the mushroom will grow into. And then out of that comes the, the stem, the cap, or, you know, the pom-pom uh, looking thing in uh, lion's mane's case. And you harvest that, that fruiting body uh, with our products. We make a concentrate out of that. So we can put the equivalent of, you know, 1500 milligrams of lion's mane of an actual therapeutic dose into a single soft gel. But what I learned is that a lot of these companies will actually, instead of harvesting the mushrooms from the grow substrate, just pulverize that entire myceliated block. And there's, you know, benefits to mycelium in addition to the fruiting bodies, but essentially what you get is a lot of filler. Right. And so, you know, you could uh, you, it's hard to compare apples to apples and it uh, obfuscates and confuses the customer by saying, you know, here's a capsule, a two piece capsule with dry powder in it. It's 600 milligrams of mushrooms. But by the, the sheer volume of those oats, you know, you could be talking about 60, 70 percent is corn, brown rice, oats. And I'm sure they're really high quality. But, you know, when you're paying uh, you know, 30, 35, 40 dollars for a mushroom product. Uh, you know, I kind of liken it to buying, you know, a, a bag of what you think is going to be some really high grade cannabis and getting like the 70 percent the dirt it was grown in. You're like, well, this is good dirt, but this isn't what I paid for, you know. Um, and so uh, mushroom coffee, uh, in addition to some of them using a lot of these myceliated oats, which is you know, just uh, tricking the consumer. Uh, and I find like really short sighted, right? Because if you're not providing value that is that is noticeable, you know, you spend a lot of money to acquire this customer and, and effort and time. And then, you know, you just like trick them a couple times or until the placebo effect uh, wears off or, or they learn something from another brand that that educates them. And that's kind of what I think about $3,500 uh, eighths for a psychedelic therapy, right? If if someone is exposed to this and that's the first place that they trust and and uh, will, will try uh, the mushroom, and then you know a couple months later after they're comfortable, um, someone will offer them you know an a, an eighth of mushrooms for thirty five dollars. You're just like, what? That guy who sold me that two thousand dollar joint is a crook, you know. Uh, and so, uh, besides that, of all these different mushroom coffees that I tried, a lot of them tasted like dirt. Maybe that was the, uh, the oats, uh, the myceliated oats. Uh, another thing that I personally didn't like was not all of them dissolved well in, uh, in hot water or hot almond milk or whatever you're making in it. One of the most popular companies, I, I, I won't use their name, but you know, they literally have mud at the bottom of their their cup um, and and somehow using that as a as a, a marketing tool so I wanted something that had a significant amount of mushrooms in it and uh, and fruiting bodies I wanted something that didn't taste like dirt but then in fact you know maybe tasted good and uh, and then I, I wanted something that dissolved you know really well into the to the coffee so uh, we ended up getting them really high quality organic cacao and coffee and 3,000 milligrams of functional mushroom fruiting body extracts uh, per cup. We've been serving it at these events. Uh, we first launched like samples of it at that Canadelic Miami show. 
that you're referencing in, in February. Uh, there's a lot of other quality products out there. I don't mean to say that we're the, the only one. Of everything searched online, you know, SEO, of any functional mushrooms, uh, lion's mane is the most searched functional mushroom. It's really cool. It's a cognitive enhancer. I also think it's badass name uh, contributes to that, to that SEO, but way more than that, like five X is mushroom coffee. And so that just really uh, made us think that this is what people are, are searching out. And uh, you know, we wanted to make uh, a really high quality product, you know, that for people that don't like dirt, taste because maybe I you know no judgment against them well you've succeeded I'm using it on a daily basis as well and I like to think about things in terms of a rising tide lifts all boats so if everyone is upping their standards creating quality products or whatnot then for me that's part of why I like to host many different people on the podcast is I want to hear what you're up to I want to collaborate and I'd love to see a future in which mushrooms in the United States were ubiquitous, were widely used and recognized for their benefits. Because, yeah, there are a lot of issues that people have. And I think sometimes there's this tendency to look at psychedelics as this magic bullet, right? Which a lot of people talk about is like, uh, you're going to take psychedelics or you're going to microdose or whatever, and it's going to solve these issues. But I think it's much broader than that. And like one of the things I love most about mushrooms is that there's so many different use cases for them. Like you can look at psilocybin mushrooms and those are phenomenal. You know, I'm a huge devote, devotee of them, but also that's the tip of the iceberg. You've got so many other different incredible mushrooms that can bring tangible benefits to your life, even if you have no interest in psychedelics. And as referenced earlier, I just wrapped up three months of extensive travel and a lot of very chaotic environments, right? On boats and rivers in Borneo and in major metropolitan cities, right? In uh, Kuala Lumpur and Singapore and Tokyo. And I didn't get sick one time. And I fully attribute that to the regiment of functional mushrooms that I'm taking, which largely includes microboost functional mushrooms. So that's something, you know, I've been recommending to a lot of friends. It's like, well, make sure you get a quality brand. You know, I try to vet, I try to get to know as many people as possible and stay abreast of new research and what brands are doing what so I can accurately and reliably recommend them to people. And, you know, there's plenty of people like my mom who recently went through chemo and I'm like, here, I just sent you some turkey tail, I just sent you some chaga, right? Or my mother-in-law, we sent her some lion's mane. She's playing the cello and all that. I would love to see a future in the United States where that's the way people thought is like, oh, let me stay healthy and, you know, take a bunch of different mushroom products in a bunch of different ways. Any way we can integrate them into our lives is probably a good thing for longevity and for vitality. And we have a lot of different use, a lot of different examples of this looking over to China and 4,000 years of, of mushroom culture and use over there and, you know, various Eastern European cultures. So I'm preaching to the choir here with the audience, but I think sometimes one of the, the feedback bits I get from people is they say, I bought this expensive supplement or for them, you know, $40 was expensive and I didn't feel anything. And, uh, you know, that, that's a slip. That's a tough one to navigate, too, because I think it's more of the cumulative effect over time, you know, with good lifestyle habits and patterns and things like that. But have you ever encountered that sort of feedback, you know, where people say, you know, I, di I didn't feel anything right away or, you know, what, what's what's your take on that? Because I know there's different schools of thought about it. And sometimes if I'm not taking anything else, I take a couple capsules of lion's mane. I feel it. 
But uh, for a lot of people, that's maybe going to be sub-perceptual a little bit. Oh, my entire career has been people saying, like, I don't feel it, bro. You know, and then uh, it's the classic uh, uh, edibles mistake. You know, uh, everybody, I think, has ever experienced edibles has, has uh, tried that. You know, I'm talking about THC, right? But, oh, yeah, I, it's not working. It's not kicking in. You know, maybe I better have one or two more bites. And then it's uh, it's way too much, and you can't uh, you can't go back there. So yeah, I've been I've been experiencing that my whole life, and uh, and you know with uh, CBD uh, it's a very similar sort of thing, right? So as uh, as cannabis was legalizing, and the media started you know becoming more accepting to the idea that this has medical properties. I remember Sanjay Gupta went on CNN talking about CBD. And I got calls from my aunt, I got calls from my grandma, you know, they're just saying, hey, did you know that there's this cannabinoid that has the medical benefits of marijuana, but none of the, none of the high? I was like, yeah, grandma, I, I've been telling you about this for years, you know? Uh, and so I think that, you know, mushrooms are really having a similar moment, functional mushrooms specifically, because as people, I think what I've learned from, from going to these conferences is that people who love mushrooms love all types of mushrooms. You know, the people who love psychedelics are putting portobellos on their pizza and truffle oil in their uh, risotto. And, and, and then also learning, too, that, that a lot of the benefits, especially of microdosing, which I think is what is, uh, is making psychedelics so much more mainstream, is we get this idea of people just being able to stick their toe in the water uh, and not have the... Um, the fear of, you know, maybe what they experienced in, in high school or college of, you know, this extreme uh, chaotic uh, trip, right? You know, and this, this idea that's almost like uh, a, a limitless pill that, you know, like you say, it's, it's this super supplement that is going to make us uber mensches. Um, but what microdosing is, is really doing when it's on that sub-perceptual level is, uh, neurogenesis, the formation of new brain cells and neuroplasticity, uh, you know, new connections to those brain cells, which in some extreme examples on a lot of psychedelics results in synesthesia, right? You know, and you can uh, see music or taste color and, you know, your senses get crossed in these ways that, that don't normally happen. Um, but on a, on a microdosing level, you know, you're not uh, hallucinating, but actually growing your brain. And I think that uh, you know, with all of this new AI that's out right now, uh, I find it, especially as a, as a writer, frustrating that, uh, that the robots are first coming for the painters and the poets and the journalists. And uh, you know, why aren't we using these robots to pull plastic out of the ocean or something useful for you know, humans, uh, humans' future? But mushrooms, uh, actually, there is a species of mushrooms that can, you know, eat plastic and uh, and maybe do this sort of stuff that uh, that our AI overlords are are slacking on. Um, so uh, I think that uh, that functional mushrooms, unlike CBD, though, I think are going to have a lot more staying power. You know, they've been around for for thousands of years, and the the cognitive uh, enhancing properties are some of the most sought after supplements in, uh, in the world right now. We have the, the baby boomer generation, uh, many of whose 
parents uh, suffered with Alzheimer's and dementia, and they saw, you know, their parents going through that. And, you know, baby boomers want to live forever and, you know, have their brain function like they're, they're 35, uh, you know, until they can upload their consciousness to a USB drive. And so uh, I think that, that lion's mane, uh, especially uh, cordyceps, uh, chaga, all these mushrooms have cognitive enhancing properties. And, um, you know, we're going to have to do something, take something to try and keep up with these these robots. A hundred percent. And I consider mushrooms to be an advanced intelligence that we're just scratching the surface of. You mentioned right there about being able to clean up plastic. Of course, there's people working on various micro-remediation projects, cleaning up oil spills. I'm very excited about the potential to grow healthy, high-quality, nutritious food with very minimal inputs and resources, thinking about how that could impact a lot of populations in places like Sub-Saharan Africa or India or here in Mexico. And there's a lot of underground mycologists and you know people in university labs, et cetera, who are starting to scale this stuff. And I've got friends here in Nuevo Leon, Mexico. One's a, a researcher and a professor, and he's created world-class mycomaterials and leathers and won design competitions in Europe internationally, just you know, with two student helpers working with mushroom leather. And there's examples like this all over the world, right? People in Bangalore that I've been connected to and somebody you know just made a surfboard out of mycelium materials like the list goes on and on and on and that's something that i try to steer people towards you know when this conversation about psychedelics dominates it's like i don't want it to be a bubble where it's like every you know we put so much hype and expectation on psychedelics to solve all these problems when maybe it's just kind of opening your mind up to the potential of some of these other intelligences that are on the planet and to really be able to see what people do with them is phenomenal like if you realize you can grow, there's examples of this, of like refugee camps, micropreneurs who start growing mushrooms and they're in a Syrian refugee camp and all of a sudden they learn how to grow oyster mushrooms and now they have food for their families and their communities in a very difficult environment where resources are tough to come by, requires less water, you know, you can grow it on agricultural waste, all kinds of stuff. And then you've got people like Paul Stamets literally taking moonshots, you know, and NASA investing and potentially creating moon bases out of out of myco mycology or mycomaterials, if you will. So the list goes on and on, and it's something that I've been paying pretty close attention to. And at the end of the day, I just think it's important that we temper the narrative a little bit and say, well, it has this potential, but you know, we still have to have people solving these issues and addressing these issues. And we can't expect mushrooms to do all the work for us. You know, we gotta partner up with them a little bit and and come through. So we're getting towards the end of the of the session here, but before I let you go, Bob, I'd love to hear about what's coming next for MicroBoost and for you personally over the next six months to a year or so. Yeah, well, I, I, we're, we're leaning harder and harder into uh, support of psychedelic mushrooms and being really outspoken about that. I've got a new uh, publicist who's uh, got me interviews uh, coming up on CNBC. I've got a uh, people magazine like lifestyle editor interviewing me and you know i just want to talk more and share my enthusiasm for psychedelics and all mushrooms uh, and, and functional mushrooms as well um, so uh, product development we're excited and we've been working with uh, some formulators to make some psychedelic enhancing gummies you know micro boost is kind of a if you know you know uh, title that we gave our product because 
you know, we, we wanted something that would go well with psychedelics. And so we're actually working on some, some specific formulas that, you know, would be great at your lightning in a bottle, your Coachella, you know, and have like a good snack that is also going to, you know, double your, your psychedelic experience, or at least increase it by, uh, by some measure. So I'm really excited about that. And, and, you know, sometimes, uh, you know, especially big corporate companies will be afraid to associate themselves with, uh, you know, these uh, gray areas and emerging markets. But we're really leaning into it and, you know, going to as many of these conferences as we can and, and uh, yeah, just really ingratiating ourselves to this community because it's, it's the best I've ever experienced. And I've, I've been doing these, these conferences for a long time. And uh, the Oakland Haifei one in particular is just, uh, is, is my people. And I, I'm just like so excited to be my friends. Thanks again, Bob Johnson from MicroBoost and Custom Capsule Consultants. Thanks for coming on the Micropreneur Podcast, my friend. Much appreciated, Dennis. Thanks so much, man. Great time. And that is a wrap. 